Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder today. I'm joined by Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ethan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good as well. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing a couple of things. We'll talk about where ASU stands within the 2023 recruiting class. We'll also talk about the prospects for this season, including some discrepancy between betting markets and analytics models for how much success ASU is going to have in the upcoming season. We'll also talk about the retirement decision of ASU Senior Associate Athletic Director for Media Relations, Mark Brand. First off, Chris, we'll talk a little bit about the recruiting class. They just picked up their second recruitment in recent days, Chase Davis, a defensive back. What are your kind of initial reactions in terms of picking up Chase Davis in recruitment? Yeah, it seems like a pretty reasonable addition. Uh, Chase Davis didn't have a lot of power five offers. It was uh, just ASU in Colorado. Um, in addition to a dozen or so group of five offers, but he's well regarded by 24 seven as a prospect uh, ranked 595 overall in the class and 54 at safety um, for frame of reference purposes, ASU made in, in an average class uh, only have maybe five or so. Uh, guys were ranked higher than that. So uh, in most classes, he would at worst sort of be in the top 30 to 40 percentile. Um, uh, he's 6'2 and 187 pounds verified. Um, and so he's a big defensive back, and ASU's actually recruiting him to play corner. Um, the, the Herb Edwards and, and his coaches have tended to like the taller, rangier types of corners. And they wanted to recruit more of those guys. And uh, Chase Davis said he's pretty comfortable playing at the line of scrimmage and in man coverage. He's moved between safety and corner uh, between high school and and seven on seven ball and all that. He visited ASU um, within a week of his decision to commit. Uh, And he uh, told me that Aaron Fletcher, ASU's first year defensive backs coach, uh, was a huge factor in that decision he felt really comfortable in the, the setting and with the coaching staff and they showed a lot of investment in him in recent weeks and so he wanted to go ahead and, and lock in his spot so i would say that's a pretty quality addition they also already their first commitment was israel carter who's a quarterback from uh, corona centennial at the school that in california that asu's had a lot of history with montez perfect Brandon McGee, Shelly Lyons, Michael Eubanks, and and uh, Eubank and, and others um, uh, played at that high school. So I guess you dipping its its toe back in the water at, at one of the Southern California schools where it has um, a, a more sin- substantial legacy. Uh, Carter's really sort of um, represented himself well in recent weeks and months in seven on seven ball. Some of the 24-7 analysts, Greg Biggins in particular, have really kind of raved about how he's looked in in some of those formats. And so he's ranked uh, 881 uh, overall and 82 among quarterbacks, or 42, I should say, pardon me, among quarterbacks. But I think he's going to actually move up. So they have two very solid commitments, but um, uh, there's no Power 5 teams in the country out of, um, I guess, 64 maybe teams who have fewer than two commitments in the class, who definitely has been a very slow start to their 2023 recruiting class. 
Yeah, and, and like you said, it, it's been few and far between. While it's good to see him pick up a second recruit, it, it is the second recruit. They're last in the Pac-12 and outside of the top 80 nationally in recruiting. So when, when you look at this team, I think there's a lot of things that people may see in terms of why recruiting has struggled as much as it has. But from your point of view, what's kind of the biggest thing causing them to struggle recruiting-wise? Well, I think it's a combination of several important factors. Uh, it's hard to really say exactly how much weight to give to 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 them, but they uh, they they obviously lost five of their coaches um, in the last year, and recruiting tends to be something that uh, you develop relationships with guys over longer periods of time, especially the higher end recruits. And then if you lose coaches, then you have to get new guys that are uh, recruiting a lot of those players. And sometimes that's harder when, when uh, other schools have more continuity and a longer time with staff members recruiting guys. So that's absolutely a factor. And then you have some concerns with um, recruits and people around them and even some negative recruiting about whether or not this ASU staff will still be around uh, to coach them um, you know, a year from now. Or, or more than that. Um, so that's, that's something that has the ability to kind of weigh on their ability to add higher end prospects. And then on top of that, there's the, the NCAA uh, investigation, which could lead to some concerns and does has led to some concerns among recruits that I've spoken with about what that might look like for ASU next year and beyond. Are there going to be sort of uh, sanctions? Are they going to be more limited with scholarships? Is this going to have the, the net effect of impacting their ability to be successful? Um, and so I think you put those three things together and the, uh, there's no doubt that those are all factors to some degree in what has led to ASU having a much slower than, uh, than average start to, to recruiting in this, in this 2023 class. Um, yeah, and then maybe also on top of that, you could have coaches who they feel like maybe they are the likelihood that they're going to be at ASU in another year is low. And that could impact um, how hard that they're working on the trail or their, uh, their, their commitment to what's going on in recruiting. I, I will say pretty clearly that ASU has offered scholarships to fewer uh, members of this class than some previous classes. They haven't had as many higher end prospects on their campus as prior classes. Uh, they don't seem to be as actively on the road as prior classes. And all those things also contribute to uh, some of these challenges. I think in the event that ASU does uh, end up with this coaching staff remaining beyond this season, the 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 result of this will, would be that they would have to end up taking a lot of transfers again. Now they they added more transfers this year than than any class in history at ASU, and that's sort of becoming a national phenomenon due to the transfer portal and changing of, of rules around um, guys being able to to transfer one time without penalty prior to graduation. So that's, uh, I guess that makes it, would make it easier for ASU staff or any staff to be able to sort of replenish. Um, but there's, there's also no really way to substitute 
still getting a pretty good influx of high school and junior college recruits. And so um, ASU was, was labeled by 24-7 sports as one of the six Power Five teams that were the biggest losers in the transfer portal this year. And that's because they had 18 scholarship departures, including four top 100 uh, transfer departures, which tied for the most in the Pac-12 with USC and was among the six or seven most in the country. But out of all those other six or seven teams in the country, only one of them, other than ASU, which is Florida, uh, was not among the top six in the transfer portal rankings in terms of the, the, the incoming transfers. ASU did add 14 transfers and has a pretty good class, a top 20 transfer class, but they lost more than uh, relative to what they gained than six of the top seven teams that appear to have the most overall impact by the transfer portal. And so when, you, when, you, when you're ASU and you lose Jermaine Lolay, Eric Gentry, Tommy Hill, uh, and then, of course, Jane Daniels and Diamante Trainum and several of your top receivers headlined by Johnny Wilson and Ricky Pearsall and L.B. Bunkley Shelton, it, it's very difficult to replace all of that. And even if you do replace it from a, a talent standpoint, which I don't think that they necessarily fully did, you also have a loss of continuity, and, and which has to sort of be made up for in other ways, which you know they also have new coordinators on offense and defense. So there's a lot that really goes is, is, is going into all of that. Yeah, and when you speak about the transfer portal, I think from a lot of people's perspective, it, it brings a, a massive wrinkle in terms of recruiting and just bringing in talent and losing talent with a football team. So if you look at kind of ASU in a bubble, you might think, oh, they're losing a lot of players due to transfers, but they're also bringing in players for transfers and they're not bringing a lot of recruits. So where would you see in terms of ASU, how they compare to you know other schools? I know you talked about it there, but a lot of transfers are leaving from other schools as well. So with kind of the NCAA investigation, how different is it at ASU compared to other schools with transfers leaving and just not really being able to bring in necessarily or not bringing in recruits right now from high schools? How different is it? Because they are bringing in transfers and it seems maybe they're replacing some people, but in comparison to other schools that aren't during an investigation and struggling recruiting wise, what is that comparison like? Yeah, so um, it's a good question. And it's not easy to sort of um, distill that down to something that's that's a 30-second answer. Uh, I think one of the most important things to consider is that right now ASU has 72 projected players on to be on scholarship for the fall and out of a maximum allotment of 85. And I'm reasonably confident that's the fewest number of scholarship players that ASU will have going into any season in history. Um, it's certainly the fewest since I've been closely following this, which is 20 years. And, um, and prior to uh, the 85 scholarship limit, there was a limit of 105 that was around 20 years earlier. So I, so I just don't think that ASU's ever had barely more than 70 scholarship guys going into any season. And so what that does is it, it eliminates your sort of redundancy. It makes, it, it gives you fewer number of players 
that are younger that you're sort of developing to prepare to replace the ones that you have that are older that are maybe starting. So ASU uh, only has like six freshmen who are incoming. Bennett Meredith, the quarterback, Tevin White at running back, Jacob Newell as a tight end. Uh, they have um, uh, Robbie Harrison to de-tackle. Blazin Alono uh, Wong is a defensive end slash edge player. And then Carter Brown's a kicker. Well, so they have no high school receivers, no high school offensive linemen, no high school linebackers, no high school corners, or even defensive backs whatsoever. And that is, that's never happened. Um, and so what that means basically is you don't have young guys that you're uh, working with and developing that are getting fully integrated into your system and your culture and all of that. And then after a year or two, when you have the guys in front of them on the depth charts apart, they're sort of filling those, that in and, and, and starting in, the, in that place. And this is going to continue to be uh, an exacerbated issue, actually, because right now they have two, only two 2023 commitments. So they're not going to end up anywhere near what would be their normal two-year influx of high school and junior college players, especially high school players, because they did add several uh, junior college players. But, but so you, you can kind of offset that if you're doing a really good job at adding transfers, but not really if you're losing as many transfers as you're adding or more transfers than you're adding. So ASU uh, did get a really big addition uh, from the transfer portal and Emory Jones, the quarterback, former Florida starter, to replace Jane Daniels. But is that going to be an equal transfer? I don't know. Like an equal trade-off, I should say. I don't know. But And then they added Xavion Valaday as a running back who's been very successful uh, you know, in the Mountain West at Wyoming. Is that going to be equal to replacing you know, Rashad White and then via transfer, Diamante Trainum? Well, maybe, I don't know. But then you go to receiver. Well, are they going to – they added one guy, Cam Johnson, at wide receiver from Vanderbilt, who's been pretty solid. But they lost, as I said, Pearsall and Bunkley Shelton and Wilson. So they're not going to be better at receiver. They lost uh, a guy in Curtis Hodges who was among the better full-service tight ends. They added Messiah Swinson from Missouri, who's been a career backup. Are they going to be better? I doubt it. And then at – uh, at offensive line, they have to replace guys who exhausted their eligibility, three starters, and they, they did that largely via transfer, but are they going to be as good? I don't know. So you can look at everywhere on the roster, and that's the question that you would have. And I just think that in most places, they're not going to be better. Like they didn't add a linebacker to replace their gentry, or they tried to uh, in, in, in uh, Mississippi State transfer, but then he decided that he was going to leave after spring ball. So uh, secondary, they added several transfers, but they're asking those guys to replace Chase Lucas, Jack Jones, DeAndre Pierce, Seven Fields, and well, that's a, that's a big task, right? So um, other schools in the Pac-12 have had as many or even more guys transfer than ASU. A few had more than twenty. We put up a thing on the website that kind of goes into all of that. If you had more than twenty. Um, but I don't think hardly any teams, if any teams 
saw as much of their better, like higher end talent depart while also not replacing them with equivalent or better talent. So USC also had four top 100 transfers, but USC signed the number one incoming transfer class in the country to basically offset that, those departures, including, you know, literally like, like two of the top three uh, transfers in the country. They, they added a Heisman Trophy candidate at quarterback and at wide receiver. So like, that's a huge uh, uh, net positive for USC. And then UCLA um, has also one of the best tra- incoming transfer classes in the country. So ASU had a, a good transfer class, but is more like Florida, which also had a coaching change and added a lot of good transfers, but probably lost as much or more transfers. So ASU, you know, objectively, the people who are looking at this thing not from a uh, niche ASU coverage standpoint, they tend to perceive ASU as one of the biggest losers in the transfer portal, which really shouldn't be happening if you're in, if you're, if you're going into your fifth year as a coaching staff. And then let's also say, remember that uh, Ray Anderson, ASU's athletic director, has publicly said multiple times recently that ASU is going to have to outperform its peers is in developing them, the players, such that they feel like there's a lot of value in them staying at ASU versus making decisions that are more based upon uh, the name image likeness marketplace, as, as for example, as one of the biggest things. Well, I think ASU has been sort of behind the curve institutionally on name image likeness, but also if some of your best prospects, they've lost 10 of their 16 four stars over a three class period. Uh, Jaden Daniels class to the most recent freshman class that just completed their freshman years. They've lost 10 of 16 of them four star high school recruits to transfer already. And so that, to me, significantly undercuts what Ray Anderson has said is what ASU is going to need to be able to do to be successful, which is developing guys who aspire to play at the next level. So um, these are sort of additional reasons why you could say that Herm Edwards hasn't been successful enough at retaining a lot of enough of his top talent and or adding new top talent uh, in light of the NCAA investigation in the 22 class and now persisting into the 2023 class. And a question I'll kind of ask regarding this is if, if you look at ASU from a perspective of their recruiting classes are, are super small, we talk about 2023 having two recruits right now. The idea is, I guess you're basically building through the transfer portal. So what kind of limitations are there if that's what you're doing? Is there a limit on how many transfers you can bring in? Or is it kind of just a free-for-all right now in college football that you can bring in as many transfers as you want and then even in a way kind of actually build through transfers rather than through recruiting class? Like, is that even a possibility? Well, that's a good question. So um, there, there was a rule that limited teams, 25 new scholarship enrollees, in any given calendar year. And that could be any combination of 
division one transfers, junior college, high school, division two transfers, et cetera. Um, now they're, they've, they've relaxed this for a two year period due to teams struggling to uh, stay close to that 85 limit due to how many guys are, are transferring out. So ASU will be able to add a significant number of transfers, but the, 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 uh, the higher end, better transfers, they end up being really in extreme demand. And so you're not going to be able to replenish all of your uh, graduated players and your transfers with all equivalent transfers at a place like ASU in most cases. I'm not saying it's not possible, but given the other sort of challenges that the program currently has, um, it seems very unlikely. And that those are the things that create um, this, this sort of downturn in the overall talent on the roster. One of the things that I look at that I think is really important uh, for our audience to understand is um, I'm always evaluating, okay, how good is the talent on this particular ASU roster relative to all of the teams that I've covered and historically I've been at ASU. And a big component in that is not just among your starters, how good are your starters, how much experience do they have, how much sort of development and continuity do they have, um, familiarity with each other and your staff and what you're trying to do schematically, all of which is really important. But then also beyond that, how good is the next tier? Like how good are your backups if guys get hurt and get knocked out of the lineup? Like how are you, what's, what is the, their replacement uh, capability at, across a roster? And then beyond that, how good are your young players? And so what, to me, one of the biggest sort of uh, ways of, of articulating how you know when your roster is really good is when somebody who is talented enough to start in the power five decides to transfer because he's not able to rise high enough on the depth chart to be able to play over a one or two year period. And he sees that and he goes, geez, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to play at ASU, not because I'm not good enough to play at this level, but because I'm, I'm uh, sandwiched, you know, three three levels down the depth chart because they have an all-league caliber guy who's a junior starting at this position and the backup is a guy who's who's really good and I'm like you know in the same class as him or one class behind and I'm a freshman or a retro freshman and wait a minute like I, I might not be able to start here for the next three years and uh, like fans they tend to get frustrated when they see those guys depart and they you know, there's a lot of hand wringing about like really good transfers. My view is the opposite. That's when you know that your program is in really good shape when those guys are transferring. But the problem, as I see it, when you look at this ASU roster this year, is um, they're going to be really thin at a lot of positions. Like you can't, they only have uh, six scholarship wide receivers and they have no incoming freshmen wide receivers. And they only have, um, you know, like at linebacker, for example, they, it's like, there's some questions about their depth. And then the secondary, it was like, it's, it was setting up 
uh, a year to two years ago, like they had what I was talking about, where some really talented guys probably weren't going to play and were going to transfer. Well, now they've had so many departures not replaced by enough high school players that you look at their their secondary and you go, okay, you know, is there enough talent at um, you know, at safety, backing up some of these guys. And there's, there's some questions about that. that you have. So, um, the, 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 and, and then on top of that, which you have to then sort of consider is how good is a coaching staff at being able to maximize the talent that does exist on the roster. So last year, the, in a lot of these analytic models, ASU was forecast to have the easiest, or one of the easiest schedules in Power Five, right? And so that's why that's and, and then also they had among the most experienced uh, team in terms of the overall number of starts, games played, and um, they had a lot of continuity because they, they had their same offensive coordinator going into a second year. Uh, Antonio Pierce was a defensive coordinator where he had been co and they kept keeping their scheme and they had Jay Daniels as a third year starting quarterback. So all those things, plus their schedule being really easy, um, it, it set up to where it was a super ripe opportunity. And that's why when, when their talent and their experience and their continuity were all great and their schedule was great for them to only win eight games, it's sort of a sign that the coaching staff is not outperforming it's, if anything, it's underperforming all of those variables together. And so now you look at this team and you go, okay, well, the talent is not as good or as deep or as experienced. And the continuity isn't as good as you have coaching changes and a bunch more new, new players. And then on top of that, the schedule is a little bit tougher, right? And so those are the things when you put it all together that lead to thinking about what will be possible for subsequent seasons with the staff. And as in my mind, the way I look at it is if you continue to be building in those areas and you're on the uptick, uh, that's, that's, those are the indicators of a very healthy program. And right now ASU doesn't have a lot of those indicators that reflect well on its overall upswing and in fact if anything there clearly has sort of been now a dip from last year in some of these key areas and the last question i'll ask regarding this is with it being a dip and how kind of bad it looks not for now only now like for the future as well what do you know of to be the plan to get out of this dip from the asu just in general well, that's the thing is that it's um, they don't really have a a ability to do that. It's like um, if 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 you're sitting in your Toyota Corolla at a stoplight and uh, a um, Ferrari pulls up next to you and wants to race you, what what is your plan for beating the Ferrari? Right, like like ASU has significant uh, limitations due to the NCAA investigation that can't be addressed. You, 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 you can't alleviate in the, in the eyes of high school recruits and their families and their coaches, the, the concern 
uh, about whether or not they're going to even be coaching the team next year. You can't eliminate whether or not they're going to have sanctions, including, you know, a bull ban and scholarship reductions and all these other things that are important to a program. And you can't artificially fix the relationships that were lost by coaches who were recruiting guys in this class for a year or longer who are now no longer part of the program because they lost their jobs related to the NCAA investigation, right? So, so but how do you, what is your plan for fixing those things? You, you, you can't, right? Like you can't drop a new engine in your Toyota Corolla at the, uh, at, at, you know, like in the split second before that you're going to race a Ferrari. So they can't fix a lot of these things. Um, the only way that these things get resolved is uh, an NCAA sort of finding that allows them to move forward by not having a lot of these things clouding over them, meaning that somehow they get out of this largely unscathed in a way that they can then sell to recruits and their families and others, and also gives them the ability to say that they're not going anywhere and that the, the staff is going to remain on the job beyond this year and all that. But the thing is, Ethan, they aren't going to get that. They're not going to have the ability to do any of that. And so therefore, uh, they can't actually fix these problems. They're not fixable. Um, and um, certainly not until you get past the notice of allegations from the NCAA, which is probably still some months away, from my understanding. And NCAA tends to move very slowly. Um, you know, a lot of people I talked to indicated that they, they thought ASU would get the notice of allegations sometime around midsummer. And this was several months ago. Well, now some people still haven't even talked to the NCAA in this investigation, who are germane to the to uh, what the findings will be in this notice of allegations. So maybe this doesn't happen until you know late in the year. Well, the, the, this still looms over everything that they're trying to do. And so uh, how do you sort of fix what's unfixable? Um, that's the question. You really can't. So I think, I think they may have to basically move on from the staff or get a much better, much more favorable sort of outcome from the notice of allegations than they expect to get they still are expecting level one infractions um, by all indications that I have gathered, which would, and, and they've also self-limited um, in recruiting in other ways, try to get ahead of whatever sanctions there might be. And I think that they actually should impose a, a bull ban on themselves this year because they're probably not going like, to go out and win nine, 10 games or more based on everything that I'm saying. So yeah, it's not, it's not the kind of stuff that ASU fans want to hear, but it, it really is just the reality, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it for now. I'm just going to give it to you the way that it is. Yeah, and let's transition and talk about the reality. You just kind of hinted at it, but let's go to the upcoming season. There's pessimism about it, about that the upcoming ASU season, and it's not looking as good as last year per se, and it's also reflecting in the betting markets. The The win total is roughly around six. It'll change depending on where you are betting, but there is a discrepancy between that and the analytics forecast where the win is more so 
around when total, I should say, is more so around seven with FPI and things of that nature. So there was a discrepancy similar last season, but with the discrepancy now around six and seven, what is there that we can really make from that? And what is there that you can kind of see from that, Chris? Right. So actually, the it's actually worse than that because the, the ESPN FPI is currently predicting an average of 7.7 wins in ASU season. Um, which basically means if, if you running, if you run the, the ASU schedule in a simulator a thousand times, the, the ESPN FPI believes, based upon its, its, its data that it inputs, that um, ASU would, would get an average of 7.7 wins. And when you say the six wins in the betting markets, you're talking about the over-under, meaning um, that uh, ASU fans uh, or any, any bettors could put money on whether or not they think ASU is going to win more or fewer than six games. And, um, and that number sort of reflects the fact that there's not nearly as much optimism in the public about this particular season versus last year. Last year at this time, the over-under was seven wins, um, maybe as high as 7.5 in some places. Um, but, um, and then the, the FPI projection was around nine. So there was a very similar discrepancy of like two wins, give or take, right? Like last year, it was seven over under and then nine in the FPI this year. It's around six in the over under and around 7.7 in the, the FPI. And people will remember, of course, as I said, last year, ASU won eight games. So they were in the middle between the over-under and the FPI. But see, the difference, though, as I see it, from, from one at least one analysis perspective, is last year I thought that the over-under was a great bet uh, for the public at seven, and then they, they exceeded that. But I also thought that ASU had a very good chance to win nine games in the FPI. So I thought that the FPI number was very sort of – uh, a good forecast of what ASU should have done in an average season. And remember, if ASU uh, had just not had a huge uh, structural collapse at BYU or got, the, you know, 28 to nothing second half run against it in Utah or not turn the ball over three straight times to start the game, the homecoming game in Tempe against Washington State, it, it, only one of those games becoming a win would have led ASU to a nine-win season. So, you know, that's kind of why we we felt that 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 nine wins was was a very reasonable expectation for ASU on average, and that ASU probably should have been the favorite in the South last year. But when I look at this year's team, the analyst in me feels very differently about it because. Whereas last year, I thought the over-under, uh, it was a very good bet to bet the over at uh, 7.0 wins. I look at 6.0 wins this year, and I don't feel like the over is a good bet. And beyond that, I would say that the 7.7 forecast by FPI seems extremely generous, like extremely bullish in ways that I don't even really kind of, I can't really fully comprehend. Like I don't understand based upon ASU schedule and the roster and the coaching situation, why ASU is perceived to uh, be by ESPN's FPI a 7.7 win average type of team. I think it's much more 
closer to that over under of six that the betting markets are sort of forecasting. And and with that, I know you said you can you can't really wrap your head around the discrepancy in terms of why there would be seven point seven in analytics and around six in betting, but is there anything you think might be causing them to kind of from an outside perspective with analytics say they'd win that that much that many games I should say versus kind of betting favorites and what you're seeing as an analyst? Well, um, ASU does have a pretty strong front seven returning, even with you know significant departures. DJ Davis and Tyler Johnson, Gentry, Darian Butler, they still should be pretty good against the run. And also, they still probably should run the ball reasonably well. So, so I think when you sort of factor those things in, uh, that's and then and then looking at everybody else's potential in the Pac-12, which the models are sort of um, including. Like um, ASU has some of its easier Pac-12 games this year on the road, right? So, so maybe maybe a big part of this is. That, that the FPI thinks that ASU is a better than 50% shot to win at Arizona and at Colorado. Okay, so that's two, two Pac-12 game, road games. Then, of course, ASU is uh, very likely going to win um, its two non-conference games that aren't Oklahoma State, right? So then you have four wins, and then they're like, okay, well, then on top of that, ASU hosts uh, Washington, and Oregon State, and um, and UCLA, and so then there's a good chance that in Utah, and so then there's a good chance that ASU can win like uh, you know maybe a few of those games. Um, but see, I I actually I actually see it a little more skeptically than that. I think that this particular ASU team being a 500-ish type of a forecast in my estimation uh having some of your tougher opponents at home could be actually a worse thing for the prospects of your team um especially when early on in the season asu has to play at oklahoma state and go to usc and and host utah so conceivably asu could be like a two and three team after its first five games with two Pac-12 losses, and then does ASU have sort of the character and the culture and this staff incentive to be able to persevere through that, or would it then have a greater likelihood of losing on the road to Colorado, Stanford, and Arizona? And I, I think that the latter seems as likely or more likely than the former, coupled with the fact that ASU could also potentially lose at home to a UCLA, Oregon State, which was a bowl team last year, and ASU didn't handle playing well, and um, you know, and then UCLA, of course, is another team. So um, I guess that's sort of why I, there may be a discrepancy in how the FPI sees it versus versus me. And remember. Um, FPI is looking at it like if ASU is a 55% chance to win a game, that, that goes down as a win. Well, you know, uh, 
a lot of these games are probably sort of viewed as close to being toss-ups. And ASU may have just a very slight edge in a few of them, which then equates to a little bit of an inflated projected win total. All right. Well, let's let's throw out the the FBI and the the betting lines that we're seeing out the window from a Chris Cartman standpoint. What's the what's the Chris Cartman line of wins this season? What's the what's reasonable in your eyes in terms of how well this team can produce next season? Yeah. So one of the things I, I tend to like to do, um, people will know this on our, on our message board, the Devil Sanctuary, is I like to say what I think ASU's three most likely records are uh, in order. And I would say 80 to 90% of the time, ASU ends up with one of those three records. And I've been doing this for a number of years. And this year, I think the ASU's range is, is narrower than a lot of years. Like I would say there's basically an 80% chance at minimum of ASU ending up with five, six, or seven wins. And the reason I say that is because um, Again, it's a tough, it's tougher schedule, less continuity, less talent than last year and a tougher schedule and ASU won eight games. And um, yet ASU also has two games on its schedule this year that are non-conference, like should obviously be very easy wins, Northern Arizona and Eastern Michigan. Eastern Michigan actually could be decent. Like I don't, think ASU is going to be a 20-point win over Eastern Michigan. I think that could be a closer game than that, potentially. But ASU should win those games at home, right? And then ASU probably should win one or both of its games at Arizona and Colorado. Colorado was also one of the biggest losers in the conference in the transfer portal, and things were not really going well for Carl Dorrell's program. So, um, so I think ASU has a chance to win – maybe even both of those games, but should win at least one. And then ASU's got a pretty good chance to win uh, at Stanford. And they, they have decent chances to win uh, at Washington State, um, uh, home against Utah. Uh, and they have, you know, they have a chance to win at Washington State. Um, you know, uh, I think very unlikely that they win at, Oklahoma State or USC, those are like their toughest games on their schedule. But if you were to say, okay, ASU's probably going to lose um, Oklahoma State and USC, probably going to win uh, Eastern Michigan and NAU. They have eight other games. And on average, maybe that they win half of those games. So that gets you six wins. So I think and plus or minus one are the most likely, uh, you know, outcomes on either side of that. So I think if I were to say right now, I would say the, the ASU's most likely record is six and six. I think that it's kind of harder to figure out the second most likely, but I'm going to say five and seven. And then I think seven and five is the third most likely. And then if you were to go further than that, is it more likely that ASU wins eight games this year or four games this year? I think that by a very slim margin, I would say four is more likely than eight. And so that sort of tells you why I think the 7.7 is overly generous on the FPI. And especially when the beginning of the schedule is very difficult with ASU playing Oklahoma State, at Oklahoma State, hosting Utah, at USC in uh, 
the the first five games. If ASU ends up at two and three after those games, which I think is the most likely outcome, well, there's almost no way that ASU is getting bowl eligibility, six wins, if it then loses to Washington State, I mean, Washington at home on October 8th. So that's when it becomes a, a must win. Then ASU played at Stanford at Colorado. Well, it definitely is going to have to win one of those two games uh, on the road in back-to-back weeks uh, to be able to stay on a pace to track toward a six-win season. And um, maybe if the team is able to do that and get some sort of positive energy that it can finish in its final four games uh, hosting UCLA at Washington State, hosting Oregon State, and at Arizona, which is um, very conceivable two wins or maybe three wins if things go really well. Um, they can sort of finish with a flurry and, and get to like seven wins or maybe even potentially eight wins. But I just think that if anyone is thinking that ASU has a good chance of winning more than eight games this year, um, they are looking through very jaundiced maroon and gold glasses. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. On June 26, a lot can happen between now and the season, but June 26, Chris Cartman has the most likely outcome of the season for ASU at six wins. So we've gone through a lot of ASU football so far in this podcast and a lot of information for you guys to know before the season. But before we go a very important person, a very important man of ASU athletics, Mark Brand, retired after 39 years at ASU. Yes, almost 40 years in Arizona State Athletics. ASU Senior Associate Athletic Director for Media Relations, Mark Brand, is retiring. Chris, what can you say about just the impact Mark has had on ASU athletics during that time? Well, uh, the man is an icon, in my, in my opinion. Um, my opinion as well, hundred percent. I don't think I, I don't think anyone has had more uh, of an impact on ASU athletics over a longer period of time than Mark Brand since Frank Cush. Um, and 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 Mark Brand was at ASU a lot longer than Frank Cush was at ASU. Nope. To put it to put it in this perspective, nobody has ever been who worked at ASU athletics. Nobody has been to more ASU practices or games than Mark Brand. Uh, nobody has more institutional knowledge. Like he's the person that is the go-to if you're in media to try to understand things or have historical context around anything. Because um, I got what like six or seven coaches. He was for, there for every single minute, and. Um, I think just I admire his work ethic and the passion and commitment that he had to doing his job so much. This is someone who was, you know, he would come, they, ASU would, would play on the road. They'd fly back to Tempe. They'd get in at one or two in the morning or three in the morning, depending on where they're coming from and the game time and all that. And he wouldn't even go home. He would stay at his office and he would work until the next morning so that he could prepare all of the information that ASU and the coaches and everybody in the media needed disseminated uh, to them 
uh, so that they can all do their jobs to get ready for the following week. And then during the week, he would still be in his office at five in the morning or something like that every day and just grinding. So, um, yeah, like, just to put some, some perspective on this, um, over the last 15 years, I've probably been to more practices than anyone other than Mark Brandt, more AFC football practices than anyone. I very rarely miss a practice since like 2006 or five. And no other media member, like, you know, or, or coach or anyone, like, has been at as many practices over that time as me, except Mark Brand, okay? But Mark Brand has uh, 20 plus additional years on top of that, like more than twice as many of, uh, you know, never missing an ASU, not, or I shouldn't say never, but very rarely missing an ASU practice and never not missing any games. So, so, so for me to equal that, I have to stay on this job for like 20 more, 20 something more years. That, that doesn't, that like blows my mind. Think about that. Um, and I don't, and I really don't think that anyone else will ever uh, come close. He's like the Iron Man. He's the Cal Ripken of, of ASU athletics, you know, and, and he's, um, he's always been, extraordinarily professional and uh and hardworking and dedicated and trying to help everybody and um you know like uh, just you know our our audience right um every week there's hundreds of people posting messages on our message board and 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 mark brand would read and he would sort of let me know like what needed to be sort of what was factually inaccurate, what perspective um, lacked certain context or whatever. Like he tried so hard to help ASU fans have the best understanding of the circumstances of the program. And also, I think it's important to say, really essential to say, is that you know the pandemic changed a lot, but prior to the pandemic, there was more access, there was more players and coaches that were made available to us, the media, by ASU and more access to practices and, and other coverage opportunities by Mark Brand in ASU athletics than anywhere else probably in the Pac-12 and among the top in the country. And he was an advocate for trying to have more access with ASU's coaches and with the administrators. He was somebody who fought to try to help us do our job to the best of our ability. Um, and he also, for me personally, was extraordinarily instrumental in my career. Um, you know, I was the first person who covered ASU digital only meaning we didn't have any print publication like there was no it wasn't a newspaper it wasn't there was no magazine that we didn't have an annual thing that we put out and um you know i had conversations with mark and, and also with doug tamaro um 
about about all this going back to like 2004, 2005, when I started covering ASU and primarily recruiting at that time. And they were sort of pioneers in uh, embracing new media. And and I was I was the beneficiary of that. Um, you know, as much as anyone, maybe probably more than anyone. And so I owe a lot to Mark Brand personally for his open-mindedness and is willing to incorporate something that now we look back at 15 years ago and it's like, well, of course, like the, the new media and digital media, um, you know, are, have a normal role to play in, but, but, but it wasn't that it wasn't perceived to be that way within the industry and even among his peers probably looked at him like, why are you doing this? And it makes it, you know, puts more pressure or stress on us to have to follow suit and all that stuff. And, um, you know, it was like, I think Mark and Doug that probably advocated for me being a Heisman Trophy voter with Greg Hansen, who was in charge, the columnist from Tucson, who was in charge of overseeing Arizona's media, um, you know, the distribution of the, the Heisman Trophy voting. I think I was the first person probably to be able to be included in that, who was a sort of a new media person in, in, in college football, you know, quote unquote, as opposed to like a newspaper or radio television personality. And, and, and so I just really from a, I, I've reflected on this quite a lot to myself over the years, but I can't really thank Mark Brand enough for the role that he had in my career. And also in my opinion, in what I think was uh, beneficial for ASU fans to be able to get uh, niche coverage of the program in new media um, and um, just, yeah, I mean, he's, he's an icon. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I, within the last few years, I, I had been joking with him about um, hoping that he would stay on for another 10 years. I think I said that like three years ago. And then every year I'd be like, hey, Mark, nine more years. Hey, eight more years, seven more years. But the, the nature of college athletics with the you know the, the NIL and the transfers and the, the, some of the NCAA and the amateurism issues and media, it's it's changed a lot in, in the last several years. And I, I uh, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for Mark about sort of what impacted his decision to, for now to be the time, but I just think that it's harder than ever for these people who have given so much and do give so much every single day. Um, and also I would just say as part of this is it's hard when you're, I, I've been, I've been critical of ASU's administration, Ray Anderson in particular, um, to think that you're going to be able to service all these sports and have sport expansion and all this stuff and all these additional responsibilities that, that, that drop off to your media relations department and that not wear people out. And that not be very tough to be able to, 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 for people to feel like they're accomplishing everything that they would like to and want to and need to, but also have work-life balance be healthy. And so I'm a big proponent in saying that ASU Media Relations needs more help. They need more employees. They need more staffing. They need a lot more. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I'm just going to leave it at that.
Yeah, and as as someone myself who's been a student journalist, nowhere near as long as you've been here, Chris, but I have been here for about three years. And when you go to different colleges and even different high schools, sometimes you just get pushed away as a student journalist. But Mark has always been welcoming to me, no matter who I've been covering ASU sports for, and I'll be forever thankful for how helpful he's been throughout the whole process. So we definitely thank you for everything you do and everything that Mark Brand has done for ASU athletics. And we wish him best of luck in his retirement and whatever else he ends up endeavoring. So. He's a young, hey Mark, hey, Mark is a young guy. That's another thing is like, you think, okay, 39 years doing this, uh, you know, he's like ready to be put out to pasture or something. So when he can maybe come to that conclusion and that's just not, that's just not the case. I mean, he has still a tremendous amount of energy and, and very sharp. And so he has a lot more years that he's going to be able to enjoy with his, his wife and his family. And um, I, I, I'm very happy for, for that. I think that he's going to – I just can't imagine that he's not going to be thrilled um, to, to, to be in that new phase of his life. So and I, I hope that it is uh, everything that, that he uh, wants it to be. For sure. He is a, a living legend. So we'll look forward to seeing what he ends up doing after this. But thank you for everything, Mark Brand. In terms of this podcast, that's going to be all we talk about today, but make sure to stay tuned to Sun Devil Source as we have tons of stuff coming your way. There is a ranked schedule out that is ranked based on the difficulty of the opponent so that if you want kind of more about what the season and how the season might go, that kind of additionally gives you some stuff based on the schedule and how difficult the opponents are. We'll also continue to be putting out player capsules on every player in the roster and grading everybody on the roster at every position in terms of their readiness to help the team next season. And they'll just be, we're kind of just a little bit more than a month away before the start of preseason camp. So we'll continue to update you on that. And we'll start to have other camp position previews as well that will be starting to roll out next week. We'll also have one more podcast as a camp preview podcast that'll be out uh, near kind of in July as we get closer to that camp. So there's a lot more to come in the upcoming month, and then we'll get soon to be into that preseason camp. So a lot to come from Sun Devil Source, so make sure to stay tuned. But that'll be it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I've been Ethan Ryder alongside Chris Cartman. Thank you guys for listening along and have a good one.